Heavenly Father, thank you that you're not just an idea, but you are a God who is active and who does stuff in history, in time and space. We thank you for um, these two chapters we've just read. They seem a long way from us. And so we pray that you would help us, please, to see what they mean, what they reveal of you, what they reveal of us, and how they fit into your wider story. Be at work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The big thing we've said the last few weeks has been working our way through the start of Joshua. There are two things going on that we need to kind of hold together and not forget and hold intention. Um, two parallel ideas. One is that God is, is steadfastly faithful. Again and again and again, we've seen that. We've, we've seen his promises to his people being worked out. But then the other thing is that because of his faithfulness, his people are to live in a particular way. They're to act in light of that faithfulness. So God makes promises, but his people are to trust him. He says, I will get you there. Now cling on to me. I would say if you've not had a chance to listen in, then do go to the website. It will help you to get where we've gone and where we're going. Um, but just as a brief summary, in chapter one, do you remember we, we saw the transition of leadership? Um, the book begins with Moses dying, and then the, the baton is passed on to Joshua, and the people trust and they listen to Joshua, showing that they agree with this new leader. Chapter two, last week, as um, Matthew and Kat so ably taught us, um, with fancy dress, Joshua sends two spies into the land to check things out. They go to Jericho. They end up, end up at Rahab the prostitute's house. I notice, Matthew and Kat, you didn't mention her, uh, her job. Um, but it seems that the Lord has gone before them and that she and the rest of the people know that what God is like. That even though Israel is a ragtag, motley bunch of nomadic people, the Canaanites have heard the stories of God and they are terrified. Rahab helps them to escape. Spies head back to Joshua and it seems like game on. Um, chapter three, though, is this long account and chapter four. And what we're going to do, I'm going to try for the first half to spend time sort of swooping over the passage to try and get to grips with the story. And the second half will be, so what? What does this mean? What are we meant to do with this? What is our response to be in light of what God does at the Jordan? And the thing is, we don't have to guess what our response is meant to be. I think it's very clearly, cleanly laid out for us. Here is the big idea, though, for you to latch onto this morning. It's on the screen. Only the Lord can get his people into the place of rest. If that is the big idea, I'm going to refrain from saying you can fall asleep now. But that is the thing I want you to latch onto, to cling onto, to chew over this week, to talk about in home groups, to meditate upon. Only the Lord can get his people into the place of rest. So we'll see this is not military planning. This is not um, precision engineering. This is not the genius of Joshua to get across the river. This is the Lord, and we're to have no doubt about that. And that idea is reinforced for us in a number of ways. The first very simple one seems to be that the Ark of the Covenant is the focal point of the two chapters. Do you remember the Ark of the Covenant? It's about 
130 centimetres long, I'm told, by about 80 centimetres wide and high. It's covered in gold. It's constructed as the Lord told them to. And back in Exodus, it would have lived in the tabernacle. But the ark isn't that important. What's most important is what's inside the ark, and particularly the two tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. Here is the box that contains the law of God. And you see, the, the ark matters, therefore, because it's a reminder of both of God's covenant commitment to his people, but also his presence among his people, with his people. It is he who will get them to the land that he has promised them, and he will be with them on the way there. Which means in chapters 3 to 4, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned 17 times. It is in chapter 3 and verse 3 and verse 4. And verse 6, actually twice, in verse 8 and 11 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 17. And then in chapter 4, verse 4, 7, 9, 10, 11, 16 and 18. I don't expect you to write them down. But I'm trying to make the point that again and again and again we hear the Ark of the Covenant. And just in case we get too excited about the story and the water piling up and forget what this is all about and who is doing this, and why this is happening. So the drumbeat that resounds through these two chapters is the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. Because God makes it possible. Because God is with them. And Israel is not passive. They have to trust and follow their faithful God. But it is the Ark of the Covenant that is at the heart of these two chapters. All the people of God have to do is to trust him and follow him. And I say all, but actually that's easier said than done, isn't it? That's hard enough in the everyday, in our mundane little lives, let alone this kind of enormous logistical manoeuvre where the odds are totally stacked against them. I love it in verse 3, verse 15, just on the way past, you get this almost as a footnote. Here are the odds stacked against them. The Jordan is in flood all during the harvest. It doesn't mean a huge amount to us, but it would mean it's about a mile wide and probably about 10 to 12 feet deep. This is not a trickle, this is a torrent. And couple with that, not just the soldiers, but the huge numbers of people who will be there. The children, the animals, the possessions, the mums, everybody. Imagine the chaos, imagine the fear. They've been camped in, in Shittim for For at least a few months, they've seen the Jordan in front of them. They know what an obstacle it is. And I'm sorry, now? You want us to cross the Jordan now in flood season? Isn't that bad timing, Joshua? Maybe we'll just give it a couple of months. Wait till things have calmed down a bit. Maybe that would be wiser. That would make more sense, surely. Joshua, are you sure the Lord has got his schedule right? But it's not a mistake. It's it's not a mistake, he's not mucked up on his timings. Rather, as he loves to, the Lord makes it more unlikely, more improbable, even more certain that it is not about us and it is about him, even less chance for us to be proud of what's going on. But to see this is from him. Now, what is this plan? What are they doing? Well, again, remember that the twin idea is God is faithful, but we are to trust him. Let me read from verse 4 to 6, and you see some of that active trust being worked out. Chapter 3 and verse 4. Then 
you will know which way to go since you've never been this way before, but keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. What does this active trust look like at this point? Well, verse 4, firstly, it seems there to, to look to God and not to the river, I think. We don't exactly know why the ark is so far ahead of them. Maybe it's something to do with God's holiness and power, a distance, a separation. Maybe it's to show that it was the Lord who did it and not them. Maybe very practically so they can get a, a better view of the miracle. They can see it all. They can experience it. We don't quite know. Maybe it's a mix of the three. But there would be no doubt as to why this water is piling up in this way. So verse 4, they are to look to the ark. To look to God and not to the river. Secondly, verse 5, they are to consecrate themselves. That is to sanctify themselves. To prepare themselves, maybe through cleansing, maybe through confession of sin. Why are they to do that? I think they're to get ready to encounter this extraordinary work of the Lord's. They're to get ready to see him at work mightily. Showing something of the fact that they are dedicated to him, submitting to him, trusting him, ready to see him work. Because this is unusual. The Lord is going to do amazing things, miraculous things. That is worth just noting because sometimes when we read the Bible we have the wrong impression that that it's jam-packed full of the weird and the wonderful and the crazy. And this kind of thing happens on every second page. And the people then, well, they were just a bit gullible. And they would have expected this kind of thing. We can't really trust that now, can we? But no, this is extraordinary. This is unusual. The, the amazing things there, verse 5, literally things to be astounded at. We're not meant to think they were gullible or they were expecting this or they were comfortable with this kind of thing. Thirdly, verse 6, the priests have a specific task in all this. They are to be the ones who pick up the ark. They are to be the ones who head out in front of everybody else. It is they who will reach the Jordan first. It is, it is they who will take that first step into the water. Can you imagine being a priest? Can you imagine that first step in? Will you trust the Lord? He's, he's told Joshua what you're to do, but will you trust him? You reach the very edge, about to step into the water, floodwaters, torrents. Will you trust him? You pick up your foot, you're, you're ready to walk forward. Will you trust him? Pick it up with me again at verse 15. Now the Jordan is in flood all during harvest, yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upsteam, upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan, while the water flowing down the Sea of the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off, so the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completely had completed the crossing on dry ground. You see, it is the Lord who made the water and so it is the Lord who can turn off the Jordan. 
It's as if he just turns the tap. It's no problem. And the people cross over unharmed. God's faithfulness, God's people obeying him, listening. And we're meant to have the Red Sea passage in our minds. Perhaps you've already done that, but you get it explicitly at the end of chapter 4 as well, at verse 23. As God's people were rescued from Egypt, as they entered the wilderness, so the Lord did something similar in Exodus 14. In fact, we know that Rahab and the the folk in Jericho have heard of that, because we heard that last week. But here, as they leave the wilderness, so the Lord again turns off the tap. Can you imagine being among the people of God? You had heard those stories from your parents and their parents and their parents. Stories of a rescue of their ancestors. Stories of water piled up. Stories of God's power and provision. And then suddenly here, here it's not so much a story anymore. It's your reality too. I want to say this is not so much a passage about God doing miracles in our lives. I have no doubt that at times he will perhaps remove extraordinary barriers, that he will do the extraordinary, that he will do the miraculous. He can and he does. But I think this account does not mean we head down to the Thames, frustrated by the lack of bridges round about Aston's Ayat over there, and think, right, I'm just going to walk across. I don't think that's what it's about. This is a passage about the Lord who has and who can and who will get his people to be with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And nothing can stop him. He will get you there. This is a passage for when we wobble. It's a passage for when we think, I'm not sure I can do this anymore. It feels like there are too many obstacles. It feels like there's too much going on. I keep mucking up too much. I'm not sure he's got me. And we panic. And we wobble. And yet he says, look to me, because I've got you, and I've done this. He's the sort of God who even suspends the laws of nature that his people might get to be in the place of rest with him. He's the sort of God who raises people from the dead. That sin and suffering might be dealt with forever. That he might get his people to be with him forever in the place of rest. The kind of passage that says, don't look at the torrents of the Jordan. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Trust him. It's the Ark of the Covenant that stops the water. It's the Lord that stops the water. He's got you. And so broadly speaking, I think that is the heart of the narrative. That's the bare bones of the story in front of us, chapters 3 and 4. The people of God crossing over the Jordan because the Lord stops the water. And they're into the outskirts of the promised land. And I think there are loads of responses in the text. Some implicit, some explicit that we're meant to have for ourselves. Um, I want to highlight for you four reactions, four responses that I think are clearly there and that it would be worth us chewing over. The first one is this, that is the leader is exalted. It's, that's in verse, chapter 3, verse 7 to 9. 
And then it's particularly picked up as well in 4 verse 14. What do I mean by that? I mean, the people see that Joshua, they see that Joshua is indeed the Lord's leader for them now. We saw two weeks ago that they agreed he was the one to succeed Moses. They said that they would follow him. They said they would trust him. They accepted him. Now this is the first time really we've seen his leadership in action. And so verse 7, 3 verse 7, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of Israel so that you may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Or 4 verse 14, that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of Israel. They stood in awe of him all the days of his life, just as they had stood in awe of Moses. So this is a... This is a miracle that is meant to give us confidence in a person, in the person whom the Lord has provided to get his people into the promised land. Again, I I don't primarily think that it's a call for you to trust me or to trust the leaders here at Magdalen Road or trust the pastors or whatever it might be, but actually primarily for us to trust Christ because he is the one who is victorious. He is the one who will get us to be with him. He is the one whom the Lord has exalted and who we should be in awe of. Just one verse to show that. Um, Hebrews 2 and verse 9. The writer says, We do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That is, we look to Christ, we are confident not because of our ability, but because he is exalted and crowned and powerful. Because he died for his people, because he was raised again for his people. Because he is reigning for his people. You see, just as the Lord removes the barrier to the place of rest through Joshua, So through the resurrection, the Lord removes the barrier to the place of rest for us through Jesus. And so Jesus is crowned with glory and honour. He is the means by which we shall be finally exalted and so we trust him. So firstly, we see the leader is exalted. The second really important one... um, which I think is a key part of the passage, is that it teaches us the generations are to remember. It causes us to stop and to remember. That's particularly in chapter 4, 1 to 10. There's a bit of question over whether there are two piles of stones made, one in the water, one on land, or whether there's just one. I'm going to slightly duck that because I think the concept of the stone pile is the most important thing. I think there's a good argument that it is at the very heart of the account as well. So I think there's a good argument that says the structure of this passage works where you've got um, chapter 3, 1 to 17 as a sort of description of the crossing, how it's going to happen. Then you've got chapter 4, 1 to 10 being about the stone pile. And then you've got um, 4 verse 10 to 17 being the crossing the other side. So crossing either side with stone pile in the middle. So that might be the key section at the heart of the passage. Let me just read some of that again for us. 
And you'll see what I'm going on about. So 4 verse 1, when the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to make up 12 stones. Sorry, to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone. On his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it crossed the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. And we get it again and again and again and again through the Bible, whether it be through, through food or through feasts or through festivals or through physical reminders like this one. For the people of God, remembering what the Lord has done is crucial. Remembering, remembering his faithfulness, remembering his acts in history, remembering what he is like. Remembering his character is a key part of Christian discipleship. Because we forget. Because our our senses each day are bombarded by all kinds of other things. Things that say to us, trust me instead. We have such short memories. And so the Lord calls them here to remember what he has done. Because the people will get into the land and there will be all, there'll be all kinds of other difficulties and hardships and frustrations. And before you know it, the memory of them crossing the Jordan will be a distant memory. And then there'll be a new generation. And even after them, another generation and their kids might ask them, well, what is that massive pile of stones all about? Mum, what do they mean? What's it for? And so God says, well, you can tell them, because you can remember. I love that it was to be all the nations, all, sorry, all the tribes of the nation in, um, remembering as well, everybody. There are 12 people picked from the 12 tribes to collect 12 stones. There's an equality about it. Each group is represented, even the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to remember. And they're not going to be in the land, because they're the, remember the farmers who settle outside the land. But the River Jordan will not divide the nation. Everybody is to remember. And this remembering concept, this idea, is more than just a sort of, oh yes, I remember. Not just a simple box to tick, something to mentally recall, but it's something to make a difference. It's to think how we live in the light of something that has happened. It's living it out. It's being active because of it. Now, we don't have a pile of stones. For us, in the New Covenant, primarily we we have a meal that Jesus instituted for us. And so as we take bread and wine and we remember and we... We recommit to the powerful death and the resurrection of Jesus. So we say, I will live in the light of this again. Because we forget. And as a unified people, 
Together we say, he is ours. This is my story. He is my saviour. My saviour whose body was broken, whose blood was shed for me. Together as a people we do that. Remembering him. Because we forget. Those pile of stones is going to be a, a perpetual reminder down the generations of the Lord's actions in history. But actually the scope is not just down the generations, it is around the world as well. Thirdly, then, the nations might know of his power. Have a look at the last verse that we were in this morning, chapter 4 and verse 24. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. That is, this is a missionary act. People will hear about it and they will tell others who will tell others. And we came across this concept last week. Rahab has already heard what the Lord is like. She's already heard about the parting of the Red Sea. She's already heard about the defeat of the enemy kings. And you know, that's always been the Lord's plan. His plan has always been to display his glory to the nations. That his actions would be heard by everybody. That the nations would know what he is like. It's like you drop a huge stone into the middle of the pond. And the waves trickle to the edge. And the edge. And the words travel and the news spreads. You see it as a thread, actually, right through the scriptures. Israel is to be a light to the nations. And then the freshly resurrected Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And so, do you see, just as the waters pile up here as they cross the Jordan, the people are about to go into the place of rest and all the world will hear about it. So Jesus is raised. There's an empty tomb. His people can now be led into the place of rest and all the people will hear about it. All the nations. And so we take the message of God's power with us in our lives, making disciples as we go, whether we head down our street in our neighbourhood or whether we head overseas to the nations. The ripples continue to spread because the edges haven't been reached yet and people still need to hear. So the leader is exalted, the generations remember, the nations might know of his power. Fourthly and finally, again in that final verse, 4 verse 24, he did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. He's kind, he's compassionate, he's good, he's gracious, he's generous, he's loving, but he's not a God to be trifled with. He's powerful, he's mighty, he's awesome and, and always, it says, always, his people are to fear him, not in a kind of cowering and trembling sense, but rather in awe and majesty. As we sense his magnificence and his splendor, 
He is not tame. He's the kind of God who can simply turn off the tap on the River Jordan when he wants to, even though it's flood season. Meaning his people can enter the promised land and enjoy the rest that he has for them. We're to fear him because he's the kind of God who can raise his son from the dead so that sin and suffering and death will finally be done away with. So that his people can enter the promised land and enjoy the rest that he has for us. And you see, when we read Joshua chapter 3 and 4, we are meant to gasp. We are meant to be in awe. We are meant to bow the knee because together we remember afresh who our God is and what he is like and that he really is powerful and mighty. Let's pray. Lord, as we read chapters like this that feel such a distance from us, might we have, please, our eyes fixed afresh on who you are. Well, thank you that you are gracious and kind and loving, but we, we see your awesome power. Might we be a people who rightly fear you, because you can turn the tap on the Jordan, but also because you've raised your son to eternal life, that we might enter the promised rest that you have for us. In his precious name we pray. Amen.